Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church in Somerset, Kentucky. Please make sure to visit us online at phbcsomerset.com. We are starting a new series today in the book of James there in the New Testament. And uh, I'm looking forward to it because James is probably my favorite guy in the New Testament besides Jesus. Let me clarify that, okay? I've got two favorites in the Bible. Joseph in the Old Testament uh, is my favorite, and uh, James is my favorite in the New, besides Jesus, of course. Uh, But um, James was the Lord's brother, okay? And he became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He was a man of prayer and faith and wisdom. Um, In his letter that we're going to look at for the next few weeks, Uh, He illustrates what genuine faith looks like in everyday life. And that's what I'm calling this series is Genuine Faith. So today my sermon is entitled, How to Turn a Trial into a Testimony. And um, it's it's, um, a very good uh, statement that we got to think about. How to turn a trial into a testimony. So, how many of you are going through a trial right now? Raise your hand. I won't ask questions, okay? Just raise your hand. All right. Now, here's the thing. I've heard that most people are either going into a trial, or they're in the middle of a trial, or they're about to come out of a trial. So, wherever you are in that, just know that trials are part of life, and they're part of the Christian life. And yet, I believe God's Word has instructions for those who are going through a trial. Uh, The natural response is to dread a trial, nobody likes trials, and to be discouraged by it. But when we understand that God works through trials and how we are to respond to trials, it kind of frees us to say, God, what are you up to? And uh, I think of uh, Jacob, you know, I mentioned Joseph in the Old Testament, his dad, Jacob, who was... uh, his name was ultimately changed to Israel, the, the uh, father of the nation. Jacob, when he had lost Joseph, because one day he sent Joseph, go check on your brothers, and he never came back home. The story was that the brothers hated him so much that they betrayed him, they faked his own death, they sold him into slavery, uh, off he would go to Egypt, and they would never see him again. And so to go back home and look their dad in the eye, They took that coat of Joseph's, they tore it, they killed an animal, dipped it in the blood, and they said, here's his coat, we don't know what happened to him. And that was their story, and that's what they stuck to for so many years. And then a famine comes to the land, and he sends his boys to Egypt, and uh, they see Joseph, but they don't recognize Joseph, because Joseph looks like an Egyptian. And he begins to ask all kinds of questions. He accuses them of being spies and so on and so forth. And to make a long story short, finally they have to go back to Egypt a second time to get more food because they're out. And they have to take uh, the one son they left home, Benjamin. Uh, Dad never really trusted them again. He sent sent Joseph and he never came home. And now he's afraid to, to send Benjamin with the rest of his sons because he's already lost one son, and now one son is in prison, because when, um, when um, Joseph met his brothers, he didn't reveal himself the first time. He kept one of them in prison in Egypt and sent the rest home with food and said, when you come back, 
bring this other brother you're talking about so that I know that I can trust you. You're telling the truth and you're not spies. And so at this point in Jacob's life, one brother never came home. He, he thinks he's dead. Another brother is in prison in Egypt. And now the youngest brother that he tries to protect everybody from is being asked to take a trip with his other sons that he doesn't trust. And, and, and it's too much for Jacob. Jacob cries out in, in Genesis 42, verse 36. Their father Jacob said to them, talking to his sons, It's me that you make childless. Joseph is gone. Simeon is gone. That's the one in Egypt in prison. And now you want to take Benjamin. Everything happens to me. Now, I grew up reading the old NIV 1984 version, and I'll read what it says. Their father Jacob said to them, We've, we are, You have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you want to take Benjamin. Everything is against me. So whether it's everything happens to me or everything is against me, you get the idea of where Jacob's heart and mind is. He's going through a trial, and he's like, life's not fair, everything's against me. Oh my gosh, what am I going to do now? You ever been there? Well, that's where Jacob was. Now contrast that with Paul the Apostle. Now, before I just say what I'm going to say, think about who I'm talking about when I say Paul the Apostle. He was Saul, who, who was a relig religious zealot. He was a Pharisee among Pharisees. And when this follower of the way, which is what Christians were originally called, when these followers of the way came, he saw them as a sect uh, that was going in the wrong direction. And he took it upon himself to... Uh, to persecute and prosecute these new Christians because he didn't think they were right. And Saul, um, he was there when Stephen, the first Christian, was murdered in Jerusalem. He was there approving of his death. And um, then a uh, great persecution broke out in, in Jerusalem and everybody was scattered. And um, Saul ultimately had marching orders from the high priest to go to Damascus. And on the way to Damascus, he had an encounter with the glorified risen Christ. He became blind for a season. He was led by the hand. He heard an audible voice from God. His testimony is given three different times in the book of Acts. And, 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 and that's basically Paul's salvation experience. And all of a sudden, Paul goes uh, from Saul to Paul. He goes from being a a persecutor of God's people to one of God's people that's persecuted the most. And you can read about his story in some of his letters in the New Testament. I mean, he was given the uh, 40 lashes minus one three or four times. They, they, wouldn't, they, they, they would go 40 minus one. They believed the 40th one would kill you, you know. He was beaten. He was uh, mistreated. He was put in chains because of Jesus Christ. And uh, Paul... He, he lived a, a really hard life standing up for Christ. And yet Paul makes this statement of faith in Romans 8.28. He says, we know. In other words, as believers of Christ, as followers of Christ, we know something. And here's what we know. We know that all things work together for the good of, uh, for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Contrast what Paul is saying with what Jacob is saying. Jacob is saying, oh my gosh, life's not fair, everything's against me. Paul is saying, 
I know that all things, even the good, the bad, and the ugly, God can use if I love Him and I'm called according to His purpose. He can use it for my good. He can take those lemons and He can turn it into lemonade because that's the kind of God we serve. All right. Now, as a child of God, when we talk about how to turn a trial into a testimony, I just want to say right off the top here that you don't have to cry out, everything's against me. The next time you find yourself in a trial, oh no, it's not fair, everything's against me. Nope, that's not it. If faith in Christ is talking, then you're going to say, Lord, I'm going to joyfully walk with you through this trial because you're going to work it out for my good and your glory. I don't know how, but that's what faith is all about. Faith is, uh, when we live by faith, we don't live by sight. Those are two different things. So look, if you will, in the book of James, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1. I don't want to rush past this opening statement. Now, James is not uh, wordy, and he is uh, not long-winded, and I will try to do the same. So stick with me. And James 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes dispersed abroad, greetings. Now look at what he did and look at what he didn't do. His identity is wrapped up in, I'm a servant. Now that's huge because this is James, the Lord's half-brother. He came from Joseph and Mary, whereas Jesus came from Mary and the Holy Spirit. So half-brother. So this is the half-brother of Jesus, kin to him in the flesh, saw him grow up, was one of his siblings, okay? And he doesn't name drop. He doesn't play that card. He says, I'm a servant. I'm a servant of God. I'm a servant of Christ. And then he writes plainly to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad. In other words, he's talking to all Jewish believers and he acknowledges that they are dispersed. Why does he say that? Again, going back to Acts chapter 7 and 8, the day that Stephen became the first Christian martyred for his faith or killed because of his stand for Jesus Christ in Jerusalem, uh, Acts chapter 8 says that a severe persecution broke out in Jerusalem that day. And it says that the church completely scattered. I mean, just like that. And here is James writing to these people, and he knows they're scattered. And because the fact that they're scattered, he already knows you're going through trials. And I don't even pretend to know what they are, because he begins to talk about trials of many kinds. I like what Ron Phillips said. He says, it's fitting that James refers to the scattering of the people of God before he talks about trials because the scattering itself was a great trial to God's people. It was this persecution that brought about the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem to ends of the earth. Now, that's good, isn't it? Before he even tells us about our trials, okay, and how God works in them and through them, we already know that God took this trial in Jerusalem and He totally scattered the church. He got the salt of the earth out of the salt shaker, okay? And he used it to spread the gospel to the then known world. Everything else besides Jerusalem. Don't lose sight of the fact 
that God wants to turn your trial into a testimony. And when we look at the pain and the discomfort, and I can't believe this is happening to me, we need to step back and say, God, what are you doing? And see what God is doing in the big picture. Well, how should we respond to a trial? I've got, I guess, three things to share with you this morning, three or four. The first one is this. God uses trials to help us grow. God uses trials to help us grow. Look, if you will, in James 1, verse 2. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials or trials of many kinds. Because you know, there's that phrase again. Remember Romans 8, 28, we know. Uh, well, here it is again. You know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Now notice Scripture lays out how we are to respond to trials. It says, consider. That's an accounting word. You, you, you size something up, you look at everything, you lay out the facts, you stack them up, you come to a conclusion, a logical conclusion. He says, consider it joy whenever you go through trials. I don't know anybody that gets excited when they see a trial coming their way. Do you? I know I don't. But James is saying, look, if you look at it not from your perspective, but from God's perspective, it means that God is up to something. It means that God is going to do something in you and through you. And the sad thing is, it might be a little painful because nobody likes to go through a trial. But He can use it for your good and His glory. Notice he says, whenever you experience various trials, you will experience all kinds of trials. It's not an issue of if, but when. And that's why James says, whenever. Because you can be going through life and everything is great, everything is fine, and then there's a trial. There it is. And then, of course, he says, because you know, in verse 3, again, I pointed that out. Because in Romans 8.28, Paul can say, we know that all things, that means anything and everything, uh, God works you know, to our good if we love Him and we're called according to His purpose. Now, we know that and we also know that whenever we experience trials, we can consider it joy. Why? Because God is at work. And so what I want to share with you is God uses trials to help us grow. So when you go through a trial, don't gripe when God wants you to grow, okay? Don't gripe when God wants you to grow. I love the story that Max Lucado shared in one of his books uh, that sold a lot. He talked about a, uh, a story of a, of a pet owner who had a bird, and the bird was Chippy. That was the name of the bird. Chippy the parakeet, he says, never saw it coming. One second, he was peacefully perched in his cage, and the next, he was sucked in, washed up, and blown over. The problem began when Chippy's owner decided to clean Chippy's cage with a vacuum cleaner. She removed the attachment from the end of the hose and stuck it in the cage. About that time, the phone rang, so she turned to pick it up, and she barely said hello when there was Chippy sucked into the vacuum cleaner. The bird owner gasped, put down the phone, I'll call you back later. 
turned off the vacuum. Some of y'all don't know what this means. Some of you do. Back then, vacuum cleaners had bags. Okay? I know, that's hard to imagine. But they had bags. So she unzips the bag, and lo and behold, there's Chippy. Okay? There's Chippy, still alive, but stunned. (laughs) Since the bird was covered with dust and soot, she grabbed him, and she raced to the bathroom. And she turned on the faucet, and she held Chippy under the running water. And then realizing that Chippy was soaked and shivering, she did what any compassionate pet owner would do. She reached for the hairdryer to dry him off. Can you picture this? Poor Chippy. He never knew what hit him. A few days after the trauma, a local newspaper had heard about it and written about the story and contacted Chippy's owner. says, how is Chippy? And she said, well... Chippy don't sing much anymore. He just sits and stares. Well, it's hard not to see why. He was sucked in, washed up, and blown over, and it took his song away. And what I want to tell you is that when you and I go through trials, we need to consider them and count them all joy, okay? Because God is in charge. God is in control. And even though we have no idea what just hit us, and we're still trying to make sense of it, oh my goodness, what is happening to me? Oh my goodness, this hurts, it's painful. But what is God trying to do? What is God trying to do? God works through our trials. Someone said, in, in, in adversity, we usually want God to do a removing job when He wants us to do an improving job. We just want the trial to stop. And God says, no, I want you to quit griping and start growing. Okay? So I like what Andrew Murray, what a a great servant of God he was and a prayer warrior and a man of God. He said this, and I quote, First, God brought me here. It's by His will I'm in this straight place. In that fact, I will rest. Next, He will keep me here in His love and he'll give me grace to behave as his child. And then he'll make the trial a blessing, teaching me the lessons he intends me to learn, and working in me the grace he means to bestow. And last, in his good time, he can bring me out again, how and when he knows. Let me say I'm here by God's appointment, in his keeping, under his training, for his time. And I thought, wow. Isn't that a great quote? But isn't that a great attitude when it comes to going through a trial? So you and I can count it all joy because God uses trials to help us grow. Well, there's another way we should respond to a trial, and that is God offers wisdom if we ask. Look in verse 5. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. I love what Warren Wiersbe said. He told a story one time of uh, Vance Habner, another uh, servant of the Lord and preacher of the gospel. And he says, Vance Habner told a story about an elderly lady who was greatly disturbed by her troubles. Some were real and some were imaginary. And finally, someone in her family said, Grandma... We've done all we can for you, 
you're just going to have to trust God for the rest. And all of a sudden, this look of despair came over her face, and she said, oh dear, has it come to that? And Vance Habner says, it always comes to that, so we might as well start there. We might as well say, God, I'm going to trust you for the rest. That's what we have to do. We have to seek His wisdom. Once again, the Scriptures show us what to do. It says, ask God for wisdom. And it says He gives generously and ungrudgingly, or as the old NIV would say, without finding fault. Let me share a little story. Mom doesn't know I'm going to share this, but I'm going to share a little story about our family growing up. Mom was always encouraging to me. So if I did something wrong, she sat down and she listened. I'm an only of an only. I love my maternal grandmother. I miss her to this day. I have a little um, way of remembering her every single day, you know. And um, she was kind of tough sometimes. When mom was growing up, Barbara Ann, don't you know any better than that? And mom said, I'm not going to do that to my son. Now, that's just sharing a little peek there. But when it comes to people coming to you and they want wisdom, you know, do you give it willingly? Do you give it generously? Or do you say, you're so stupid, don't you know better than that? I say it that way because many times some of us are afraid to seek God because when we've blown it, we don't want to hear the lecture, right? I mean, my goodness, if I get a lecture from mom or dad, that's what we're thinking. What's God going to say? But God says, in the midst of your trial, if you need wisdom, ask him, and he will give it generously and not begrudgingly and without finding fault. He's not going to say, now, Dennis, it's about time you asked me. I've been waiting for three weeks, right? He doesn't do that, okay? Um, God doesn't do that. He, he, he's generous. He's gracious. And when we're willing to come to Him, He will give us wisdom generously. And that's what we need to remember. So ask God for wisdom. Now, have you ever wondered how to approach God? I like this verse in John 6 where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. In other words, when you come to Christ just as you are and give your life to Him, you're not going to walk away dissatisfied. I have never, ever, ever, and I I can look at the retired preachers in the room, and and y'all back me up on this. I have never heard anybody stand up and give a testimony and say, well, I gave my life to Jesus and I wish I hadn't. I've never heard that. Have you heard that, Brother Don? Have you heard that, Keith? I've never heard it. i tell you what I have heard. I've heard people come to Christ, whether it was young or old, particularly those that came later in life, say, praise God, I'm saved. I don't deserve it. The only thing I regret, I wish I'd done it sooner. Amen? Wished I'd done it sooner. I lived too many years for the devil and for myself, but praise God, He's given me grace, and for the rest of my days, it's all about Him. When you come to Christ, you're not going to walk away dissatisfied. So Jesus goes on to say, 
in John 6, the very next verse, 36. But as I told you, you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. He was saying this to people that were doubting him. He says, everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. He's not going to turn you away. He's not going to say, what are you doing? Come to me now. You didn't come to me then. Don't come to me now. He's not going to cast you out. The Scripture is very clear about that. So how do we respond to the trial? God uses trials to help us grow. And God offers wisdom if we ask. And number three, God works when we fully trust Him. Oh boy, that's the good part. God works when we fully trust Him. Look, if you will, in James 1 verse 6. But, in reference to asking God for wisdom, He'll give it to you, but let him ask in faith without doubting. For the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. There are believers today that are double-minded. There are believers today that are unstable in all their ways. God, what do you want me to do? Well, let me think about it. God, what do you want me to do? Well, let me pray about it. Hey, God, I want to do your will, but you need to show me this first. And it's always conditions. It's always saying, God, I'm not sure. I've got to think this through. Instead of trusting that God knows best, that whatever He does for us, it's for our good, we begin to bargain with Him. We begin to negotiate. Jesus told a parable about that. Remember the parable of the, of the workers of the vineyard? Um, you know, they were out there uh, waiting around for a job to do, and, and uh, the, the, the guy came and says, hey, I need some work done. I'll pay you at the end of the day. And they said, well, how much? We, we want to know how much we're getting paid. And they, they agreed to a denarius. And so they went out and they worked in the heat of the day all 12 hours. Meanwhile, the, the, the guy came back. He kept coming back to the market. Hey, I need some more workers. And he came at different times during the day. And the rest of the times, whether it was nine hours or six or three or one or whatever, uh, he said, whatever is right, I'll give you. And if you read that parable, you will find that at the end of the day, he told the foreman, I want you to line them up, the ones that worked an hour first, and then three and six, nine, whatever, and the ones that worked all day, you put them last. And all of a sudden, they got in line and they got ready to get paid. And he says, here's your denarius, take it and go. People only work one hour, getting paid the same as one that worked all day. And, and then, you know, it, it, it's, this, it's this issue of, of, of fairness in God's will. And so here you have to trust God. You have to trust God. I remember Steve. Um, he's a guy in a former church years ago that uh, he was the kind of guy, bless his heart, that he would ask different people for advice until he found somebody that agreed with him. Hey, brother, come here. I'm not a super Christian like you, but I was just wondering, da-da-da-da-da, what would you do? Well, Steve, I think you ought to pray about it. I think you needed to listen to what the Bible says here, and I think, you know, if I were you, I think Jesus would want you to do this. Oh, okay. Hey, man. Hey, Josh. I got this problem. Like Steve would go around the, the room, you know. He would go around the church, and he would tell everybody the same thing until finally somebody agreed with him. <laughs> And you know what? We've got to realize that we have to trust God. We have to trust God fully. And He works when we trust fully. 
you know, Jesus on his Sermon on the Mount. He told the story about two men building houses. And a storm came. And one house was a heap of ruins and the other was still standing. And the difference was due to the fact that one house was built on sand and the other was built on rock. Jesus said there's a difference between the person who hears, believes, and obeys his word versus the one who does not. And God uses our trials to help us grow by offering his wisdom if we ask and fully rely on him. Look at the rest of it quickly. In verse 9, he illustrates, Let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation, but let the rich boast in his humiliation, because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises, and together with the scorching wind dries up the grass. Its flower falls off, and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. You see, when you are going through a trial, there's some people that are blessed with, you know, finances and means, and those that are not. And it's easy for us to rely on our own resources. That's what he's trying to say. But it's better when those that are in humble circumstances put their trust in God and not their resources. Because those that put their trust in their resources and not God, it'll all pass away in the end. We have a a, a high and a low position that's illustrated in these verses in James. And no matter what our position or our status is in life, We desperately need to depend on God. Look at verse 12. This is the last verse I will look at in James to try to cap it off. He says, blessed is the one who endures trials. See, we're still talking about trials. Blessed is the one who endures trials because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. I can't help but think of the McKinney family. Precious family back in uh, Dyer, Tennessee. I got to meet JT when I became his pastor, I guess in 2009. I didn't know at the time that he was a young man in his early 30s, had four boys at home, wonderful wife, and he was diagnosed with brain cancer. I can't give you the medical term. I can't even say words like that, right? But I just know that on all the research they, they had, it's not a matter of if, it's when. And the, the research said anywhere from diagnosis to five years. It was kind of like a bell curve. He ended up living six. He broke the curve. I remember when he passed away, the funeral was on Good Friday. And his dying wish is for everybody to be in church on Easter Sunday. I remember his wife, uh, she had written a thank you note to the church. And it went something like this. I've always heard that God won't put on you more than you can handle. That's not true. There's a lot of things that I cannot handle. What I have learned is that God will not allow you to bear more than He can handle. And I went, wow. 
Wow. That is so true. You know, God is with us in the midst of the trial. He'll give you the wisdom. He'll give you the strength. And if you choose to grow instead of gripe, He will do a work in you that you wouldn't believe. Their favorite verses of families, Philippians 4.13, I am able to do all things through Him who gives me strength. And that's true. So today I want to kind of wrap it up. How are you going to turn a trial into a testimony? Well, let me just say this. You don't have a testimony without a test. And the Bible says to examine yourselves, to test yourselves, to see whether or not you're in the faith. It's 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Paul says, examine yourselves, or do you yourselves not recognize that Christ is in you unless you fail the test? I've shared this with people before. I want to share it with you. If you've ever doubted your salvation, I want to make a humble appeal to you, and it's, it's biblical. The older we get, the more we can struggle with remembering details. I get that, okay? The older we get, you know, we, if we doubt it, we're like, when did that happen? Was it the year this happened or that happened? Where was I at? Now, what about, and we get lost in the telling the story that we kind of struggle with the details. You know, for years, a lot of evangelists, they would preach hard on no-so salvation. Do you know that you're saved? And they would point to, you know, do you remember where you were? Do you remember what happened? Do you remember how it happened? Do you remember what you said? I think a biblical approach is this. Is Christ in you? Is Christ in your life? Now, don't get me wrong. I remember when my kids were born. I remember when Nancy and I got married. I remember when I surrendered to preach. I remember when I got saved. Okay? I remember those things. I was there. Okay? But more than my memory of being September 23rd, 1990, First Baptist Church, Brewston, Tennessee talking to the pastor after the service because I was afraid to come down the aisle. I was a scaredy kid. I'm like, I ain't getting in front of people. Boy, don't God have a sense of humor. But here's my point. How do you know you're saved? Because you did what you expected? Because you listened to a pastor or a deacon or a Sunday school teacher? Because you did what your mom or dad told you to do? Or just because somebody says, do you believe that? Yeah, I believe that. How do you know you're saved? I can tell you how you know you're saved. Biblically, is Christ in you. That's the test. It's a simple litmus test, one question. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Paul says, examine yourselves to see, or not, see whether or not you're in the faith. Test yourselves, examine yourselves. Is Christ in you? Because if Christ is in you, you're in Christ. But if Christ is not in you, you're not in Christ. It's very, very simple. And, and, and no one can tell you that Christ is in you, but I tell you who can. The Holy Spirit can. His Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. Romans 8.18. Oh, man. Somebody say amen, right? That's what it's all about. That inward witness that comes from the Spirit of God. And so here in a moment, we're going to have an invitation And I want you to be able to walk out these doors today. And as you face this next week, if a trial hits you upside the head, I want you to be able to say, I want to turn 
this trial into a testimony. But before I get any further than that, I've got to pass the test if I have a testimony. Do I have Jesus in my life? Is Christ in me? If he is, I'm in Christ. But if he's not, you've got to start there. You're not going to turn a trial into a testimony until you pass the test. And the test is, do you know Jesus? Is he in your life? Won't you stand? Ushers, if you'll come. Musicians, if you'll come. We're going to have a time of invitation. We're going to have a time to respond to God. Well, let's pray. Father, we come before you right now. Thank you for this time to worship you. Thank you, thank you Lord, for this word from the word. Lord, I pray that we'll be able to turn a trial into a testimony. And Lord, I pray that if we examine ourselves to see whether or not we're in the faith, I pray, Lord, that we'll all pass the test. But Lord, in case there's someone here today that wouldn't pass that test, Lord, I pray that right now they'd be willing to turn from their life of sin and put their full trust in you and you alone. Father, have your will and your way in this service. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen. As the ushers begin to collect, if you feel led to give, please do. We don't expect those who aren't members to give, but uh, if you feel led to give to support the church and the gospel, please do so. But more important than that, if you have this Next Steps card, uh, fill that out. We get prayer requests on this. Um, sometimes people say, hey, I'm praying about a ministry uh, or I'm thinking about joining a church, whatever it is. This comes to me. Uh, I use this to create a conversation, and I'd love to have a conversation with you. So just fill that out. You can put it in the offering plate, or you can drop it back there in the drop box. I'll get it either way. And uh, I'd love to have that conversation with you to encourage you to take that next step or even first step in trusting and following Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church. To learn more about the church, find out meeting times, or learn how to contact a pastor, please visit phbcsomerset.com.